Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. The big news this week is that Ukraine has fired its first long-range ATACM missiles at two airports in Russian-occupied Ukraine with devastating results, which begs the question, of course, why weren't they supplied earlier? Elsewhere, reports suggest that the attempt by Russian forces to capture the strategically important city of Avdivka is running out of steam. Meanwhile, Ukrainian efforts to advance in western Zaporizhia and around Bakhmut are also making minimal headway. In other news, Putin has arrived in Beijing for a meeting with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping as part of the so-called Belt and Road Summit to mark the 10th anniversary of China's flagship global infrastructure project, while Joe Biden travels to Israel to underline American support for Bibi Netanyahu's government as it plans its response to Hamas's savage attack on its citizens. But even as he was about to take off, a missile slammed into a hospital in Gaza, killing several hundred patients, staff and civilians sheltering inside. Hamas has blamed Israel, but Israel are blaming the horror on a missile fired by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad that went astray. We'll discuss the implications of all this, but first, the news about the ATACM saw. What have you heard? Well, I'll come to the detail in a moment, but it's worth reminding listeners that we've been calling for the delivery of these long-range missiles to Ukraine for more than a year. And finally, a couple of weeks ago, came the news that the bomblet version was about to be delivered. Well, they have been in double-quick time, it seems. And on Tuesday, they were used to extraordinary effect against two airfields near the occupied cities of Luhansk and Berdyansk in eastern Ukraine, killing personnel and destroying warehouses, ammunition, runways, a mobile missile launcher, and up to nine helicopters. It was, said the popular Russian mill blogger Fighter Bomber, who has good links to the Air Force, one of the most serious strikes in all of the duration of the SMO, and by that, of course, he means the Special Military Operation. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky seemed to confirm that ATACMs were responsible by saying, I am grateful to those who are effectively destroying the occupiers' logistics and bases on our land. 
There are results. I'm grateful to some of our partners. The weapons are effective, as we agreed. Of course, all this begs the question, what if the Americans had donated the ATACMs earlier? Might that have changed the course of the war? That's certainly the opinion of razor-sharp analyst Phil O'Brien of St. Andrews University, who wrote in his weekly newsletter that the news was, and I quote, both heartening and profoundly disillusioning at the same time. It's taken far too long, writes Phil, and shows just what should have been done to help Ukraine sooner. It might have helped devastate the Russian army in 2022 when it was at its most vulnerable, and it would certainly have helped the Ukrainians with their counteroffensive. Well, of course, it's better late than never. Okay, we mentioned at the top that the attack by both sides were making little headway, Patrick. What have you gleaned of this? Well, there's been a lot of crowing in the uh, in the Russian mill blogosphere, if uh, there is such a word, and elsewhere about the likelihood that Avdiivka in uh, Donetsk Oblast was about to fall to Russian troops after a series of uh, head-on attacks. Well, that optimism seems to have dissipated on the Russian side, and even Putin I was tempering expectations this week by describing operations in the areas an active defense as opposed to a straightforward offensive. This was confirmed by the um, Institute for the Study of War in Washington, D.C., which we often quote here, and uh, that uh, noted that Russian forces are unlikely to make significant breakthroughs or cut off Ukrainian forces in the settlement in the near term and potential advances at scale would likely require a significant and protracted commitment to personnel and material, which obviously means a lot more losses. Now, the Ukrainian general staff have have confirmed that the the tempo is definitely slacking off. They said they'd repelled more than 15 assaults in the Avdivka area on the 15th of October, so at the start of the week, which was many fewer than only a few days ago. I think there were four times as many last week. And all this has, has come at a very heavy price to the Russians in lives and equipment. It looks to me, Saul, like a last gasped attempt by Putin to get something that could be presented to the Russian electorate as a success before winter sets in. There may be no further opportunity to claim some sort of battlefield gains uh, before the presidential elections in Russia, not that far off in March next year. And uh, Putin, it appears, will be one of the candidates. We speculated before that he might be persuaded to step aside uh, and go into early retirement. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And so this presidential election is very much going to be a referendum on the war, uh, I would say. Well, what about these Ukrainian attacks? Near Bakhmut, they continue to inch forward, uh, marginal advances towards the railway line north of Dishkivka, uh, seven miles southwest of Bakhmut, while the main efforts out of Orykiv, with its immediate objective being the road and rail hub of Tokmak, which we've spoken about a lot, gained a little ground uh, towards an area just north of Robotinia, but nothing spectacular. Just on the picture on the ground, I was uh, talking to Askold uh, yesterday evening, our friend Askold Krishnanitsky, who's down there near Bakhmut, and uh, he says that you know winter is definitely coming. It, the thermometer is dropping. It's heading towards a zero and he painted a very bleak picture of the kind of landscape around the trees are getting barer. And he, he said it's got a kind of World War I kind of trench feel to the whole thing. Anyway, so nothing spectacular. But uh, the broader perspective 
for the Ukrainian counteroffensive doesn't look particularly encouraging, does it, Saul? No, it doesn't. Although uh, before the news of the ATACMs being used, I would have been uh, pretty p- pessimistic, I have to say, Patrick. But this may be a game changer. Uh, uh, why? Because the increased range of these missiles means that very few targets in occupied Ukraine, if any, are now out of reach. And this, of course, is going to help the Ukrainians to degrade Russian command posts, ammunition depots, and airfields to a greater extent than they've been able to do hitherto. The airfields are really important, of course, because the attack helicopters, uh, many of which apparently were destroyed in these strikes, were used, of course, to target Ukrainian armor in the initial attempt to break through in the summer. Uh, And if those are either destroyed or pushed much further back, it may mean that Russia loses air superiority over the battlefield. And that, Patrick, as we know, could be a big game changer. There's also a good chance, of course, that ATACMs are going to be used to degrade artillery systems further and attack various other key bases and ammunition depots. So might the long-anticipated armour breakthrough be back on the cards? I've been (laughs) talking about it so many times, I think listeners will be suspecting probably not not, uh, but you never know. And think of ATACMs, frankly, I was trying to think of a metaphor. I mean, ATACMs, given their longer range and their accuracy, are high Mars on steroids. Okay, we'll come on to Putin's visit to China in a moment. But the big breaking news from the conflict in Gaza is that even as President Joe Biden was boarding Air Force One for his flight to Israel, a missile struck the Anglican-run Al-Akli hospital in Gaza City, killing several hundred people sheltering inside. Now, this is a place I know well, the Al-Akhli Hospital. It's it's right in the middle of, of, of built-up Gaza. That's where, when as a correspondent there, covering the Israel and the, and the wider region, often when there was trouble in Gaza, uh, we'd head down there. And, and often, really, to find out what was going on, you went to the Al-Akhli Hospital or the Shifa Hospital nearby, uh, to get in information as to the progress of uh, of the um, military activities. On one occasion, there was an Israeli incursion. So, you know, the best way of finding out what how it was progressing was to just really get uh, reports from, from the medical workers, from the emergency ambulance drivers, very, very brave guys who go out to pick up the casualties and find out what was going on on the ground, essentially. So uh, this is the latest in a number of attacks on medical facilities. There have been 51 hits since... Um, this started. These are not Hamas figures from the health ministry, but from the World Health Organization. So clearly, this is something that is going to be an enormous problem. Just not, you know, clearly for the victims, but also for the way Israel presents what what it's doing there. Now, in this terrible tragedy at the Al Ahly Hospital, Israel was initially blamed for the attack, um, and this certainly was the view of the of the wider Arab world who who uh, have made up their minds that, that this was clearly an Israeli, well, they're saying it's a war crime, but they are reposting and very vehemently in saying that, they're, that this was not at all down to them. This was the result of a rocket fired by Islamic Jihad, which is a Hamas ally inside Gaza, and the rocket misfired and landed on the hospital, causing all these deaths. But whether it was Islamic Jihad or not, uh, and the Israelis do claim to have proof that it was Islamic Jihad. We'll have to wait and see about that. It's already had a massive impact on Biden's visit, a summit with the Palestinian president, Mohammed Abbas. He's the head of the of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, but also very significantly President al-Sisi of Egypt and King Abdullah II of Jordan in Amman have all been cancelled. Um, 
Hezbollah in uh, the Iranian-backed uh, military organization that controls much of uh, neighboring Lebanon in the north has, has promised a day of rage. So tempers are running very, very high in the Middle East. And it's probably just as well in those circumstances that the IDF much heralded invasion, ground invasion of, of Gaza is off, at least for the duration of Biden's visit and maybe for longer. A bit of tiny little bit of good news is that uh, senior Hamas officials have said the group is willing to release civilian hostages immediately if Israel ceases its bombing campaign, which the Palestinians have, has already uh, killed up to 3,000 people. Uh, we don't know how genuine that offer is. It'll come with loads of provisos, and uh, nor do we know whether Israel is prepared to explore it further. But Israel is definitely in a tight spot here, Saul, isn't it? They've promised to destroy Hamas entirely, but after the atrocities carried out by Hamas last week, but to do that by, if, if, if their solution to the Hamas problem is a ground invasion of Gaza, it's, there's inevitably going to be a lot more deaths of, of innocents, including their own hostages, potentially. So what other options do they have? Well, they're limited, and none of the alternatives are, are particularly palatable. Um, they can negotiate, of course, well, at least negotiate the release of the hostages. We mentioned the fact that Hamas seem willing to discuss this. And it's interesting that, you know, if anyone listening to our Wednesday podcast will have heard me talking about the Entebbe raid, which I wrote a book about a few years ago. And what happened during the Entebbe raid is that a lot of uh, family members put pressure on the IDF not to do anything that was going to lead to harm towards their uh, relatives for understandable reasons. Well, exactly the same thing's happening now. So there are protests outside the IDF in Tel Aviv by uh, relatives of the hostages. And they're obviously putting a lot of pressure on the military and the government to do something about getting their people back safe. And we shouldn't underestimate the fact that this is a big political issue. So that's one thing they can negotiate, but that's not really going to solve the problem of dealing with Hamas. So what else can they do in that sense without a ground invasion? Well, they can use special forces operations with people like Syret Makkal, who carried out the Entebbe operation to do what we might describe, I suppose, Patrick, as a more surgical strike, targeted assassinations of Hamas leaders. But that's not easy going into the Gaza Strip with all the difficulty of that urban environment to take out these individual leaders. And the other obvious option is to continue with the airstrikes. But that's not ideal either, of course, because whether or not Israel was responsible for the strike in that hospital, and I have actually heard some of the evidence this morning that the IDF is putting forward. Now, how convincing it is, is one thing, but they do seem to have a certain amount of radar evidence to show that the missile came from within Gaza. Uh, they've also got an intercept of a conversation which basically said, oh, crikey, that's us, but don't worry, we're going to make, we're going to blame the Israelis. Now, how accurate all of that is, we can't say from, from this distance. But what's clearly the case is that those sort of incidents, if the Israelis are carrying on their bombardment of Gaza, they're inevitably going to be blamed on the Israelis and they're going to lose a lot of sympathy, not just in the Arab world, but around the rest of the world too. So all of these options are pretty grim, frankly. And yet, at the same time, Netanyahu's government has a responsibility, or at least an imperative to demonstrate that it can protect its own citizens. The question is, how does it do it? We should just say, of course, to listeners that this is being recorded on Wednesday morning and this is a fast moving situation. So the the situation in relation to the hospital and Biden's visit could, of course, be changing over the next 24 hours. And I hope you'll bear with us on that. Yes, absolutely. Recur returning to Ukraine for a moment, uh, we mentioned at the top that Putin has just 
met Xi Jinping in, in Beijing, the Chinese president, and she hailed the mutual trust, quotes, uh, between the two countries and, and also their close and effective strategic coordination. But as is often the case, is what he didn't say that's most interesting. And he said nothing specific about Ukraine, about neither uh, supporting nor condemning what's going on there on the Russian side. So in some senses, this is just more of the same. They've been fence-sitting very effectively, China making all the right noises, but not really offering anything tangible to restock Russia's much-depleted armory, uh, since, which has been run down very heavily since the beginning of the war. Nonetheless, he was given, Putin was given the full treatment. He was the guest of honor at the summit. So from the outside, at least, I think the message is, you know, our strategic relationship is still solid. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be apologizing for our poor geographical knowledge and answering listeners' questions. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back. Well, during the break, Patrick and I were discussing how this podcast is beginning to take over our lives, not least because the Gaza situation with a kind of daily update on it uh, means that we've got to keep an even closer eye on current events than usual. Occasionally, we get away and Patrick's uh, just had a trip up in Scotland. What, what happened there, Patrick? That's right, Saul. I did try to get away from it all. I went up to South Uist in the Outer Hebrides to do some fishing with a few mates, Mark, Chris, and Henry, well, the weather was pretty grim and we didn't catch many sea trout, but there was one very significant event uh, for the history of Scotland and the history of fishing, I would say, which occurred during the stay. Well, one day it was absolutely hissing down outside and blowing a hoolie, as they say, up there. And we decided not to venture out. We're usually pretty hardy, but uh, on this occasion it was just a bit too much. So two of the guys tie their own flies. So they got their rigs out to while away the time. Uh, we were sitting there around the kitchen table having a cup of tea and eating Tunnock's caramel wafers. Now, Scots folk and anyone who visits will know the iconic power of Tunnock's caramel wafers and Tunnock's tea cakes. 
Well, one of the fly tires, he's called Henry Ticehurst, took a fancy to the very distinctive yellow and red wrappers that the caramel bar comes in. So he then decided to use it as the body of the next uh, fly he tied. Well, within minutes, he'd created the Ticehurst Tunnocks fly. He then experimented with a dark chocolate version of the caramel wafer, uh, which comes in a in a distinctive blue and silver yellow wrapper uh, and created a, a variant. So next day, the weather improved a bit and we went out on the lock and bingo, the fish went crazy. Uh, Chris Owen managed to get six uh, using the Tunnocks fly, but uh, the more sophisticated trout seemed to prefer the dark chocolate one a historic day in the history of fly fishing i would say so that was really the high point of the trip but now it's uh back to ukraine and back to gaza yes okay but before we do uh, another tiny little interlude to say i think a couple of weeks ago according to producer james we passed five million downloads patrick so that's uh, another big milestone in the story of the podcast we're all very delighted and it's chiefly of course down to the listeners so thank you very much and do keep listening Absolutely. Right. Well, we mentioned our miscalculation in terms of geography, and I can't tell you how many messages we've had this week about our inability to identify the fact that there was indeed a Vancouver in the state of Washington in the US. And it wasn't just a Vancouver in British Columbia in Canada. Um, Kevin in particular says, love the podcast, but just wanted to give you a heads up on this. Obviously a minor point, but keep up the good work. We can't apologize enough, frankly. Uh, we should have had a quick check rather than you know, uh, making the immediate assumption. So sorry about that. We'll try to do better in future. Yeah, well, Vancouver, it turns out, I did actually look into it. And it, it's a very nice looking city, 190,000 population on the north bank of the Columbia River. Uh, it's pretty historic. It goes back to 1825, which makes it a, a very old place in that part of the world. But I also discovered that it, it claims to be the birthplace of Willie Nelson, one of my country and Western heroes, and Tonya Harding. I don't know if you ever saw that movie, saw I, Tonya. Brilliant. It's about a, an American figure skater who has, who's chaotic. Well, you, you know the story that is. But that's, I say this, we don't want to get another avalanche of, of emails <laughs> saying that you're wrong about this. Because when I actually checked out... Willie Nelson, it appears he wasn't actually born in Vancouver, but he did actually work there. And indeed, Tonya Harding, I think, was born nearby, but not actually in, but was closely associated with the place. So clearly uh, a fascinating city, and then we can quite understand why people were uh, shocked by our ignorance. Okay, we've got a question here from David Ball from Dublin. Really enjoy the podcast, but on your point of the Global South being sympathetic to Russia due to the perception of them being anti-imperial, influenced, of course, by the UK and France's history and how the Global South views the West. David finds it ironic that Russia is one of the world's last empires. It may have lost 14 other Union republics from Soviet days, but it still rules plenty of other peoples in the east of Russia since the 18th and 19th century. And of course, he's referring to the fact that it's a federation and not just the original Russian heartland. So he's got a point there, Patrick, hasn't he? I mean, uh, Russia should really be seen as a modern empire. And of course, it's trying to extend that empire by its invasion of Ukraine. And yet still it gets sympathy from the global south. It is uh, a bit of a contradiction, isn't it? It is. I think they just did their PR better in terms of uh, what we used to call the third world, you know, presenting themselves as sort of liberators, but they were essentially, you know, colonizers as well. But uh, they've got away with it thus far. We'll see how long that lasts. Now, I've got one here from Mark Patrick Finnegan, who I guess is an Irishman, 
Uh, and he says, uh, wonderful podcast, folks. Great that you're giving the average. Oh, no, he's sorry, excuse me. He's, we don't want to make this mistake again. Mark is clearly from Canada. He says that uh, he did try to contact something uh, we've mentioned before, cars for Ukraine. He hasn't heard back from them. And he's wondering if there are other options, uh, maybe ones which uh, include Israel, he says, also considering what's currently happening over there. Uh, now, Frontline Kitchen is one that springs to mind, isn't it, that we've talked about before? Yeah, exactly, and that's in Lviv. So we can't we can't talk about uh, about Israel at the moment. No doubt, we'll be getting some messages for for what people can do to help with what's going on over there. But uh, if we stick with Ukraine for a minute, uh, listeners, remember our trip a couple of months ago. We spent time with Joe Lindsley in Lviv and also met up with him in Kiev. And Joe has been uh, doing wonderful work out there. He He's involved in something called Ukrainian Freedom News. And I would recommend contacting Joe directly. And you can get him on the contact section of his website. And that's www.ukrainianfreedomnews.com. And he will tell you how you can volunteer in a useful way in Lviv and possibly elsewhere too. So do try him. Tom from Denmark has a question related to the FSB, the GRU, SVR, the you know, intelligence, the Russian intelligence services, uh, military and civilian, and special forces activities in Kiev. He's talking about the period just before the invasion. Um, he says, as we now know, the Ukrainian government survived capture. But what really happened? Why did the Russians fail? Had the Ukrainian army put up checkpoints, intelligence? and so on. And what units did the Russians use? Many questions, he says. Hope you could shed some light. Can you shed some light, Saul? Well, I mean, we all remember it at the time, the incredibly dramatic moment, don't we? And certainly the reports uh, suggested that there were these rogue units, uh, probably Spetsnaz, but, you know, could have been uh, units uh, that were being run by Russian intelligence, GRU, FSB being the obvious ones, SVR being the foreign intelligence services. I mean, all of them and or paratroopers could have been part of these snatch squads that were supposedly sent in to to decapitate the Ukrainian government. Now, I did a little bit of digging into this to see if there's anything specific on this. And there's a fascinating article that actually was published last April. That's April 2022, so not long after the events, by a Guardian journalist. But he's really quoting uh, an American uh, reporter who spent a bit of time with Zelensky, a guy called Simon Schuster. And Zelensky told him exactly what happened and how Russian troops came very close to finding him and his family as they attempted to seize the capital's government district on day one of the conflict. Now, I won't read the whole uh, article, but just give you a, a, a few snapshots. While many of his memories of those first few hours remain fragmented, Zelensky said the pre-dawn of 24 February stood out. After the bombing had started, he and his wife and family uh, prepared to flee their home. They could hear explosions all over the place. And that's when the Ukrainian military told him that Russian strike teams had parachuted into Kyiv. I'm sure that's entirely the case, or whether uh, they were coming in from Hostomel or whether they were or already been inserted there before, to kill or capture him and his family. Gunfights broke out all over the government quarter. Guards inside the compound shut the lights and brought bulletproof vests and assault rifles for Zelensky and about a dozen of his aides. And lastly, Russian troops made two attempts to storm the compound while Zelensky's family was still inside, according to Schuster, the journalist. The following night, after refusing offers of more secure surroundings, uh, we all remember this, including an evacuation by US and British forces, Zelensky walked outside into the courtyard to record that now famous video message on his phone, in which he said, I'm not going anywhere, uh, I'm here for the duration. And that was, I think, Patrick, a big turning point, wasn't it? 
Yeah, those amazing details, aren't they? It's a fabulous uh, image that summed up there. Yeah, no, great stuff. Okay, next question here is from Adam. Um, he's recently been looking at the amount of military support given to Ukraine uh, and, you know, the fact that the US is in the lead. But it's interesting, he says, that Germany seems to have turned on the tap and has now pledged more than double the UK amount. Therefore, they're going to give £15 billion worth compared to our £6 billion worth, albeit, says Adam, uh, no sign of those long-range Taurus missiles. It's interesting whether or not the fact that eight ACMs have just been used, uh, will that change German minds? We, we don't know. We'll see. But the other point Adam makes is why haven't France and Italy been uh, offering more? They made a, a combined contribution of just a little over one billion, according to Adam, which is less than many other NATO countries, including Canada, the Scandinavians and the Balkans have been giving. I mean, his question really is, why is that? I mean, what's going on and why haven't France and Italy up their game a bit more? Patrick, do you know anything about this? I, I do. It is true that the proportion of France's military aid is pretty low compared to everyone else. It's, it's about half a billion dollars, which is only 2% of the overall external military, military aid that's been given to Ukraine, which puts it way down the list. It's way below the UK, Germany, even below... Finland, in a much smaller country, much smaller economy. Now, I think this sort of plays, if you're being uh, suspicious about France's motivations here, you will remember that at the beginning of the conflict, Macron gave a rather unfortunate impression of going rather soft on Russia and on Putin, offering his services as a mediator, etc., etc. And I think uh, since then, he, he's been sort of trying to toughen up his sort of uh, stance, if you like, Fortunately, uh, he, he's, he's struck a much harder line since, but the rhetoric doesn't seem to be matched by the military contribution. Now, in its defence, France would say, OK, we made it, it may not look like a lot on paper if you just put it in monetary terms, but what we're giving them is actually quality, not quantity. And they cite uh, these 18 Caesar self-propelled artillery units, which have been very effective and they're very much appreciated by the Ukrainian forces on the front lines. but that is a quarter of the entire French stocks of this system, of the, of the Caesar artillery units. And so by giving them, they're actually, you know, they run the risk of leaving themselves exposed when facing, facing up to their military commitments around the world, particularly in the Sahel and the Indo-Pacific. Why is this the case? Well, basically, like a lot of, um, of Western powers, the what was deemed to be the end of the Cold War meant they sort of started running down their stocks. So they're they found themselves rather ill-prepared when, when uh, subsequent crises blew up, this being the biggest, of course. Now, domestically, Macron is, is actually under some pressure to, to start handing over some more kit, uh, particularly Leclerc tanks, named after the great Second World War general, of course, uh, and also air defences. So it may be that somewhere in the not-too-distant future, we do see France actually uh, putting its hardware where its mouth is, if you like, but of course, as we've often, as we always say, so why don't they just get on with it and do it now while it might actually make a difference? Yes, exactly right. And but we should point out, though, Patrick, that the French have donated at least some Scout missiles, which, of course, their version of the Storm Shadow, and we know that the Storm Shadow has been uh, incredibly effective. So you know they haven't done nothing, uh, and as you say, it's it's quality over quantity. But they obviously could do a lot more too, uh, and let's hope that's the case in in the weeks and months to come. Now, Adam Cowan asks, why haven't we seen anything more substantial across the Dnipro River other than just sporadic raids? 
He says, surely there are large parts of the river which are now shallow enough to allow certain heavy armor and new bridgeheads across, and that would draw Russian forces away from the Tokmak front line. What do you think, so what, what do you think the reason is for that? Well, it's a good question. And I've been asking the same thing myself, I have to say, Patrick, but we we should say, or I should say as a preface, that uh, cross-river operations, amphibious operations in general, are incredibly hard to pull off. I think we've mentioned before on the podcast the, the crossing of the Rhine in March 1945, but it was an enormous operation. And it was done, of course, with air superiority, which is something, at least for the moment, the Ukrainians don't have. But getting back to my point about the ATACMs, I mean, if they are able to drive uh, Russian air assets further away from the battlefield. You may see the Dnipro River as as a real area of possibility. We know that the Ukrainians have have got various little pockets of presence on the far bank uh, and therefore potential bridgeheads, but those are not kind of you know they haven't moved any major equipment over there, uh, and there is nothing that, as far as I can see, that's particularly in the offing. Although there was an interesting story this week that the Russians had targeted and destroyed a barge, a big barge in the river, which they suspected the Ukrainians were about to use for some kind of cross-river operation. So uh, this could definitely be something to watch. Uh, And Adam's right, of course. Not only might it provide an opportunity for a breakthrough in its own right, it will certainly distract the Russians and cause them to uh, pull troops from elsewhere to try and defend that position, which is probably something that they're defending relatively thinly at the moment, given that all their main assets are in places like uh, Western Zaporizhia and up near the Bakhmut uh, and Kupiansk region. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see on that one. Okay, one more question, I think maybe for you, Patrick. Uh, This is from Kieran Osigda, uh, terrible pronunciation, I'm sure. Um, And he says, hello again, gents. Well done on the pod, quality as usual. Just regarding the background to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, I couldn't help but notice that you did not mention the role Britain played in the root causes of the conflict. Britain had control of Palestine post-World War I and presided over the absolute mess that fell out of the Balfour Declaration. Just thought you should, you guys should mention it so nobody forgets whose fault it is. Now, uh, are we assuming Kieran's Irish, Patrick, and do you want to answer that? Yeah, I think we can safely say that Kieran is uh, <laughs> Irish. And uh, like a good Irishman, he's always got a beady eye on British uh, foreign policy. <laughs> Actually, I mean, anyone sort of studying that period of, of the post-Balfour Declaration, the Balfour Declaration, of course, being the pledge that the British government made that it would back in 1917, that it would look favorably upon the idea of a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. Now, that was a pledge that, of course, came back to haunt them. You're absolutely right. The only thing I'd say in Britain's defense here, Kieran, is that this was a burden they didn't particularly want to shoulder. They already kind of knew what it was like from Ireland, which was not a not dissimilar situation. Quite a few parallels there, trying to hold the ring between two competing um, sort of territorial and religious uh, traditions. So, yeah, they said, I think they did it with a heavy heart. I think to be, I'm not a great defender of British colonialism, but I really think they did their best in the circumstances. There was sympathy for both the communities, but um, in the end, you know, they were trying to keep them apart while uh, they both then in turn took the fight to, to the British themselves. So they were fighting a sort of triangular uh, conflict in a way. So so yes, they did contribute greatly to the chaos that emerged, but uh, they were doing their best. And I think we have to give them credit for trying to, to try and bring some order and some justice to a situation which admittedly uh, they had helped create, but uh, they, they certainly 
wanted to try and leave Palestine with uh, some dignity and some honour. Unfortunately, that wasn't how it turned out. Yeah, and I suspect Kieran wrote his uh, question before Wednesday's episode, Patrick, in which, of course, you talk about your book, The Reckoning, which makes it pretty clear that the British, certainly by the 30s and early 1940s, were not pro-Zionist per se. They were trying to keep the balance between uh, the competing interests. So it is incredibly complicated. And of course, the real key uh, moment in, in terms of ensuring that the UN was eventually going to give support for the creation of Israel was the Holocaust. I mean, we should never forget that. And and the, the sort of emotional and political fallout of that uh, was very much a driving force behind all of that. Quite so. Okay, well, that's enough for one week. Do join us next Wednesday. Uh, we're not quite sure whether there'll be more on Gaza or whether we'll be carrying an interview. We've got some very, very interesting ones in the locker. And of course, a couple of days later on Friday, when we'll be bringing you up to date on all the latest from Ukraine and from the Middle East. Goodbye. Goodbye.